Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Well, hello, Tom. Hey, Russ. Hi. You have not cleaned your whiteboard since the last time we talked. No, still got still got rockets on the brain. Still We're going to launch this weekend. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, good. You're going to launch this weekend. All oh, right. Yeah. Just a note for our listeners: you might want to run. <laughs> <laughs> There'll be he three. Count them: three Ammon boys running in some direction. <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't told us what size these rockets are. So, They're whether or not they have nuclear payloads, but you know. <laughs> They have no payload. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they should at least have a camera. And you heard Yvonne in there. Yvonne is with us today. I don't know. What are are we going to do? We got Yvonne here. We got to be nice now, Tom. Yeah. Oh, you guys are never not nice. I listen, (laughs) even when I'm not here. (laughs) So, Yvonne, how's it going in your direction? Good, good. It's uh, been a crazy January in my world, Uh, but mostly good stuff, so... If you're following me on uh, Twitter, you can see that I'm building a house, and there are all kinds of picture updates there. So we're in the in the thick of that, and then um, that's awesome. Just trying to navigate uh, macroeconomic challenges. Yeah, that seems to be the phrase. Yes, (laughs) that is a that is a problem right now. I'm very worried about the situation that we're in, but I don't know what to say. You know, other than yeah, this is not this is not pretty. This is this is not a pretty situation, but you know it's it is what it is. So this is our roundtable show, our monthly roundtable show. I don't even know what month this is publishing. I think this is February's. I think that's right. I think this is February's. I I'm I get totally lost in the scheduling for this thing. I have no idea what I'm doing or what I'm what I've done. It's all right. <laughs> I know we have shows in the can through the end of March, I believe. Now recorded through the end of March, so. You know, we're doing okay. We're, we're doing okay on getting stuff up. And we got a couple of really cool ones. Mike Bouchong has agreed to come back on, so we're scheduling. I we love Mike. He always Mike. has fun stuff to say. He does. Yeah, he does. So we should have him on. And then, I don't know, there's a few other really interesting shows coming up, I think. Um, so anyway. All right. So this is a roundtable, so we're going to start with Tom has an article or wanted to talk about AWS Scalable, reliable datagram protocol, and you know this is actually not, Russ. I don't know if I don't, sorry, I don't know if you saw my message. I, I switched oh, mine. you changed it. Okay, what yeah. is it now? <laughs> it's network as a service. Network um, as a service. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Thought it'd be a little more no, interesting cool. and well, no, relatable. I, mean, <laughs> I was going to say AWS is you know the problem with AWS scalable, reliable datagram protocol is that it's not an acronym filled with acronyms. That's, that's, you know, right. that, that's right. not allowed in our world. So <laughs> nice, nice. So anyway. I, I, I think the SRD is super interesting. Um, but I found something that I think is probably a little more, has a little more broad appeal. Okay. Um, the article I looked at uh, today is just a little, a little tiny piece on SDX central about network as a service. And the, the whole article is about how Gartner has now deemed that uh, network as a service is now an innovation, which made me chuckle. Like, <laughs> like Gartner's in charge of who gets to be an innovator. <laughs> I just, I just thought that was funny. Well, they always um, do that, right? I mean, that's the sure, thing. sure. You know, and I have a thing about these services. So I've been, I've been doing network engineering since the mid '90s, and 
there is always an up and to the right chart from Gartner or somebody. Not necessarily just always Gartner, but always. There's like this up and to the right chart. Ooh, ATM 25 gig to the desktop is going to go up and to the right. And in five years, there are going to be so many deployments. And you're like, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I know I know this is what analyst firms do. I get yeah, that. I've been yeah, reading their stuff sure. for years too. It just, it just made me, just the way it was worded in the article, like, oh, now this is an innovation. <laughs> Anyway, so the, the thing that made me that uh, caught my attention was they they talked about something that often happens in our world, which is a name uh, starts to get some traction and some attention, and then people pile on and start using it and using it to describe their thing, which may or may not be the intent of the original term. We've seen this with all sorts of things, SDN, uh, I don't know, all kinds of things. Um, and so, you know, the same thing's happening to network as a service, apparently. So I just went and sampled some of the definitions and, um, yeah, that's pretty much <laughs> you look at between different companies, blogs and what they call networks as a service. Some people say, oh, it's a, anything you buy on a subscription basis is network as a service. So by that definition, any consumption based licensing would be network as a service. So if you buy consumption based licensing for your on-prem switches, then you're now network as a service, which, eh, okay. And then some people are like, no, it's really just a managed WAN. And some people are like super fluffy and you don't know what it, you know, it doesn't really describe anything. Um, but the whole concept, um, I, the thing that just impressed me, uh, about the, the, about the concept is, and when I mean impressed, I mean, I don't think I, I'm not saying I like it. I just, it is interesting. Um, is the idea that there's this new thing, um, that ever is going to make everybody's lives better. But as soon as you take even one layer, take the skin off of it and just look one layer deeper, uh, you just see that it's built of a bunch of old things. Um, and it's just a bunch of old things that are packaged together in a way that, um, you, you, uh, the customer doesn't have to worry about anything anymore. And I don't know, I, I find this entertaining. I, the, you know, this world started out as IPsec tunnels over internet. It started out before that, but, but IPsec tunnels and over internet, internet, and then it was DMVPN and then it was SD-WAN and now it's network as a service. And, and, and MPLS and MPLS services. MPLS is in there too. Yeah, yeah for sure. MPLS for sure. services in, is in there. Yeah. Not the so, technology, the service. The, the, right. The service. So, um, I don't know. The thing that it just made me think about is the, um, it, it's still to the classic choice of, are you going to, are you going to make design your own solutions or will you have someone else do that for you? Both are valid choices. And I, I also don't think that either of them are always the right thing. Um, but inevitably marketing tells us that, um, this is the thing that will solve all yeah. problems. You could have NAS, you could have network as a service for a firewall. Okay. Well, first of all, a firewall is not a thing anyway. It's just a box you stuff a bunch of services on. It's not any different than any other box, really, any longer. You could have network as a service for router. Okay, let me think about that for a minute. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. So, so when I read the names that are listed in this article, at least the, few, the first few, you know, Al Alcura, Arcus, Aviatrix, Cohesive Networks, um, and, and then we get into some, some bigger names, um, you know, Cisco F5, uh, VMware, but but uh, when I look at these, the the first few in the list anyway, really what this list is talking about is is startups that are trying to take cloud networking and put an overlay on it so that um, customers don't have to learn all three different four or five however many cloud providers there are all their different networking constructs and so that they can build networks with some sort of similar configurations where they don't have to go deep in every one. And, and 
this this is very reminiscent of SD-WAN, which Tom already mentioned. But I mean, ultimately, so much of what the network startup industry has become is incubation for the bigger vendors, right? Like we, they, they, they see some sort of a problem space, they go about solving that problem, and then ultimately they're going to get acquired by one of the big networking vendors. And then that'll just get wrapped into the existing technology and then we're going to do it all again. Like that seems to be the standard um, trajectory for most of these, uh, for most networking startups. I think, you know, um, Palo Alto Networks is probably an interesting standout because they are still an independent company years and years and years after their founding. I don't know that anybody would have would have predicted that. But at the same time, th- this is how, in a lot of ways, the networking attempts to progress is that, that we do any kind of new offering as a startup and then it gets and then it gets subsumed by one of the big yeah. vendors. So, so that's it's just, that's just, it's just another iteration of that same process. Yeah. So Alkira is kind of a managed SD-WAN service from what I understand. Like it's not just SD-WAN, it's actually they're providing the core and stuff as well, right? That's my understanding from what I remember. Arcus started out building software for white box. So I'm not sure how they moved. I think they moved into this space by saying, if you can run on a white box, you can run on a cloud. Aviatrix is more of an automation company, right? I don't remember much about Aviatrix. Um, Now, somebody from Aviatrix is going to yell at me when I say this because I haven't looked at Aviatrix in a long time. But yeah, I mean, this is an interesting combination of companies that are in this, that that they're calling in this this space. Um, you know, Nefeli, Cisco, F5, Prosimo, and VM- VMware, which VMware astounds me anyway, because VMware is kind of like, does anybody know where VMware is going right now? Like, is VMware? Yeah, with the Broadcom acquisition and all that. I mean, yeah. they, they, they've they been in the NSX space, you know, they, they you know, with their, their acquisition of Nicira. So they've, they've been in the networking industry for years. Yeah. And then the, the, the um, acquisition um, of the SD-WAN company, um, Bella Cloud. You know, so they they are firmly in the networking space. You know, I look, um, you know, Alkira, uh, as as I understand it, they they're building networking constructs out of cloud natives, right? So it's not so much like we're going to build a tunnel over everything. It's we're going to build a network with the cloud native networking constructs. We're going to do it in a way that you could do it in every cloud and not have to learn all of them. Um, And that's that's kind of the general theme here. At the same time. You know, again, like I, I feel like they'll they'll grow. Um, the the winners will will win in the marketplace, and then there'll be an acquisition. Um, at the same time, you know, I mean, uh, our uh, our analyst orgs are going to group and categorize emerging yeah. emerging um, technologies and uh, and and try to help make sense of them. I mean, that's that's what they're there to do. Um, but I don't. I think we have seen they don't necessarily have a crystal ball as to what technologies are going to win. But you can get some sort of sense of what's going on in the marketplace by by paying attention to what they're talking about. Yeah, I, I think the the division the division that they propose here I think is pretty interesting because they 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 say there's two halves to this that there's MCNS multi cloud networking solutions which what you guys have been talking about and then they call out NAS as a separate thing which I think is really interesting. If you go read a little bit further down in the article, you can see that they they call it a, a sort of a different category. Um, to me, I 
that division seems a little artificial. It's still um, connecting when if it's just a bunch of WAN sites connecting to each other. Uh, and that's not really any different concept than connecting a bunch of WAN sites to a cloud or connecting a cloud to a cloud. Uh, I, I that's one thing I thought was kind of interesting about this that they that they divided it up like that. Um, and yeah. yeah. Well, and we 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 get in this pattern, and, and I don't think it's just networking, but it certainly does happen in networking where the the terminology, the language gets muddled, so we come up with a new word to describe a thing. And if that word catches on, then everybody picks up that new word and uses that to describe their thing, whether it is their thing or not. And then you know we we just end up in a spiral. Um, uh, you know, it's 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 an it's an infinite loop. We just have no way to break. It. And then we and then we end up with a bunch of words that mean the same thing, and you can't actually talk about anything anymore. Unfortunately, right? Right. Right. I mean, is it a batter or is it a switch? <laughs> oh, ooh. oh my goodness, that's so hard. Actually, and then <laughs> well, and that that's funny because I think I, this is all about the words. This article is about the words, yeah. and um, so that that thing. How much? How many cycles? How much discussion do you waste on? Is it a router or is it a switch? It does not matter. We have a business problem to solve, and we need to use the the tools that will apply to this. I, I you know, th- this has always gone on in our industry, but. Um, the confusion that this sort of thing injects into our discussions, especially with those who are not specialists in the in the technologies. Oh my gosh, you get a, a CEO or somebody coming and saying, "Well, we 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 need to use a NAS." And you're like, "Well, what do you mean? I don't know. We just need a NAS." <laughs> like, well, and the the continued unfortunate uh, pattern that happens is you will have a startup um, that is building something that's relatively new at least a set of features that's not offered by the historic networking vendors. But then the historic networking vendors will go and, oh, well, we have one of those too. And right. they'll, they'll, they'll combine a bunch of their stuff together to somehow resemble that thing, whether it really yeah. works or not. That way they can say, we have that thing too. So then they go to the executives and say, well, we have that, that, that thing too. Use our version of that thing. Yeah. And then the customers will try to implement that. It won't work well because it's cobbled together. Then they'll go buy one of the the new orgs, and then sunset the old sort of kind of was that thing and integrate the new thing into what they do today. I mean, it's it's almost, I, I don't know, I, I, well, then, well, no, it's kind of laughable. Yeah, but going back to your point, Tom, I actually think it does matter. Like, if I'm solving a business problem, am I putting in a router or a switch to solve that problem? And if I call them all the same thing, it becomes a middle box, and I have no idea what I'm actually doing to solve the problem. I'm not sure. communicating, right? Yeah. Same thing with firewall. This is why the word firewall annoys me so much. Okay, I'm putting in a firewall. It, what does that mean? Does that mean network address translation? Does that mean AI-based packet filtering? Does that mean stateful packet filtering? What do you mean? Like, what problem am I solving with this thing? Well, I'm putting in a cloud-based firewall. Like, this is, that communicates nothing to me. <laughs> well, and, and just as important, what trade-offs am I making when I put yeah. in this thing right. versus another thing? Um, exactly. And all of that uh, gets gets muddied in the conversation. Yeah. But, uh, you know, yeah. so, another day. For a little more clarity. All right. So Yvonne brought up an article, which I think is interesting. And she's going to push against it a little bit. And I think I'm going to defend it. So we'll see how it goes. Technology advances while mind retreats. So tell us what's what's going on here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a so this is an article about Chat GPT. And, and when I shared this article with Tom and Russ, I'm like, have people talked about this to the point where we shouldn't talk about it? But 
We've decided we're going to. We've talked about Chat GPT about until people shouldn't talk about it anymore. But this is an interesting <laughs> side effect of that that nobody is really talking about a whole lot. I mean, you do see conversations, but it's not. Yeah, yeah, and um, so this article, "Technology Advances While the Mind Retreats," um, by Christopher Roach, and he is arguing that really uh, the the activity of writing, of taking your thoughts and putting them down on paper and organizing them is is um, very important, is critical to helping people think and understand, and that chat GPT is going to uh, remove not only that, that toil, but also the benefits, the cognitive benefits of that work. And I, I do completely agree that writing is an important tool to help you clarify your thoughts and your thinking. And as somebody who's trying to lean into writing for the next 20 years of my career, I'll admit, like, chat GPT is a little scary. One of, the, one of my observations, though, is that if you've, if you've asked chat GPT any kind of complex question, it is very rarely accurate. It is, it is a language model. It does a great job with grammar and sentence structure and even style, but it doesn't do a great job yet with formulating ideas or content. And so what I would say is the thing that's uniquely human is the creative facility that we have to create and generate ideas. And I don't, I don't feel like ChatGPT is going to take that away um, in any time in the near future. I do think there will be consequences and unintended consequences, like my sense of direction now stinks because I use Google Maps everywhere I go, right? There will be those kinds of changes. I just don't know if it's ca- as catastrophic as the writer of the article tends to yeah. um, indicate. So that's, that's, that's Yvonne's take. Okay, so, so I'll say that I think the problem here is that we don't understand the cumulative effect of these things over time. We always, it's like, it's like, I don't know if you, if you know much about deistic arguments or arguments for God and science. And there's this thing about, Oh God in the gaps. I almost feel like we're getting to the point of human in the gaps. Like we somehow think that we'll maintain, retain our humanness no matter how much we push off onto an AI because we can always think of something else that makes us human that's at the core of what's going on. And I worry a little bit that we are playing a shrinking game against technology that is, is going to take over more and more of what we do. And rather than saying, hey, wait, no, this far and no more, we're saying, oh, it's okay, there's always some other area where we can excel. And beyond that, I'm also worried that, to me, when you write, it's not just the creative process. It is the visceral putting the outline together, getting the grammar correct. Getting the grammar correct teaches you to write well in many ways. And um, a lot of creativity, I find, is not coloring outside the lines. It's coloring, coloring excellently inside the lines to the point that you know how to draw the lines yourself. And I don't know, this whole thing worries me. And it worries me a little bit. I mean, if you go back and read Nicholas Carr, The Shallows, he talks about what this article talks a little bit about, about, um, oh, people don't know anything anymore. They just search it. And this is a bigger problem than just not memorizing stuff. This is a problem to me of, we don't know how to do narrative anymore, 
right? I mean, we don't know how to put facts in context. All we know how to do is say, oh, look, I'll search for this little factoid and that proves my case or that proves what I'm trying to get done or that will be the solution. Um, Same thing with programming. I don't know how many programmers now are complaining about, they go out on, what is it? Um, What is it, Tom? Programming. Are you talking about Stack Overflow? Yeah, or Stack what? Overflow. They're going on Stack Overflow. My memory's not doing good today anyway. They're going on Stack Overflow, and they just find the problem, and they plug, they plug the solution in. And I noticed this in the open source world, too. Oh, well, we need a so-and-so. I need a text editor in my little application. I'm just going to drag all of Emacs in. And like, really? You're going to drag all of Emacs in so you can have a little window that you can somebody can type text into. Like, write your own. Like, really, is it that hard? Seriously, for what you're trying to get done. So I think I think there's there's elements to laziness, neuro, um, neuroplasticity here that we're not thinking a lot about and stuff like that. So I agree with you, Yvonne. ChatBTT GPT is not as good as people think it is. People are impressed with it. Honestly, you know, go read some real writers. <laughs> well, it is. It's. I mean, it, it can write a limerick like nobody's business, yeah, right? Exactly. It's, it's a very formulaic <laughs> literary device. Um, it can mimic the style of speech or text of an individual, mm-hmm. which, again, is hilarious. And and I've, I've even talked to some folks who are um, software developers who have asked GPT, chat GPT, to do some, like, I have this code slice in this language. Now I need this code slice in another language. And it does a fairly good job of that. It needs a little bit of care and tending. But some of that is just rote toil. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I think, so I think there's a use for it. I do think just like um, social media, just like the internet in the 90s, I still... Um, look back at my um, starry-eyed self at the internet in the 90s, thinking, oh, this is going to usher in a new renaissance where we all have access to all kinds of information, and it's going to make us so much smarter and better. Just don't take my predictions based on that one, because I don't think that was the natural outcome of the internet once, um, you know, once people learned to use it for their own ends, right? At the same time, like, it's these things aren't going away. So we got to figure out what what to do with them, where they fit. Um, and I do think there will be some figuring out where is it helpful, where is it harmful, what, what work can it do for us that just reduces our cognitive load, and what work is it that we need to do for ourselves to grow and to think and to become better. I mean, it's it's not... You know, it's yeah. it's it's the challenge of well, I, I mean, think our times. Yeah, you go back to the beginning of television. People talked about how once television was out there, everybody was going to learn Greek and Latin, right? All these shows that we watched teach. Archie Bunker, <laughs> right? <laughs> and and Neil Postel wrote this book, um, "Amusing Ourselves to Death," death, and his argument was that every medium type has like its native way of doing things, and television entertains its resonance, as he calls it. Television entertains. Everything works on television so long as it entertains. Everything works on social media so long as it is a performance. I don't know where this goes yet, right? This is a new thing. So I'm kind of curious to see how that works out. I, I don't... The 
the articles like this one that are, you know, catastrophizing, like it's, it's really interesting. It's a sensational topic. It's going to resonate with people <laughs> because of this. Right. I, I, I would appreciate a little, seeing a little bit more writing about the opportunities that are available for us to be better because of these tools rather than, you know, proclaiming the end of the world, because this will not be the last technology of its type that everyone thinks is coming for us. Um, and I, I don't know, I like, can't we talk a little bit more about what it could do? Like, you know, it's going to replace our jobs. Okay. That's something maybe it could do. I don't, I'm not really confident about that. Um, but if there's some toil that we can, that we can shed, uh, and, and find use that employ that effort in something better that we couldn't have done 10 years ago. Um, I think that's worth, worth the risk to our cognitive uh, abilities. And it is a risk to our cognitive abilities to have something like this sitting around. Um, I think it's worth the risk to our cognitive abilities to have a tool like this, but, uh, but enough people have to say, we want to, what we want to find what that new thing is that we couldn't do before that now we can do. And that new thing is not writing articles or writing code for us. Like that's old, that's been done. Let's find something else. Like, uh, you know, even if nothing else, we free ourselves from, uh, some of our toil and mundane things to use the computer on our heads to do something that chat GPT will never be capable of. I don't know. Well, again, but again, thoughts. I would, I would. My caution on that perspective on that is that when you you have to train the computer in your head, and the mm -hmm. computer in your head needs maintenance, not just the initial training. And so when we turn to these things, like are we reducing the training on the computer in our head to the point over the long term? Do you say, okay, you can use Chat GPT to write your papers when you once you make it past your PhD? Like, and how do you enforce such a thing? So this is, this is the problem to me is that these, these types of things, we don't really think about them. We think, we think about them in terms of catastrophe versus what we can do. We don't think about them in terms of what's the good thing we could do with this. Like you said, Tom, that we can, we're not doing today rather than where can we just make our lives easier? Where can we get rid of the toil? Right. And that's a little bit of a different conversation than but earlier, I was trying to think of an analogy, and all of my analogies right now are around like craftsmanship and home building, because that's my life. But, um, you know, you think about housing and the ability for us to provide low-cost furnishings for homes, for example. Um, you think about the rise of people out of out of poverty or how folks lived a hundred years ago. And we can we can decry some of the loss of craftsmanship in kind of our, you know, either, you know, our IKEA kind of furniture. And, and I don't I don't mind IKEA. Like if there's some of their stuff is great and usable for for what it's made for. Um, at the same time, like it's enabled a whole new class of people to have access to that that wouldn't have had it otherwise. Yes, it has changed the level of craftsmanship by and large. There are still still a few craftsmen out there. They're really expensive and it's really hard to get access to them. And I think ultimately we're going to see that kind of arc play out with technologies like ChatGPT two, and and we're going to have to figure out like as and and I think some of it happens organically over time. What's it good for and what's it bad for and how do we use it? But it's 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 not like three hundred years ago everybody was sitting around reading classical literature and and writing. That was still a very elite activity because folks didn't have access to the education they didn't have access to books which were expensive so you know we'll see how it plays out we're all just 
opining at this point, but um, mm. I think it's I think it's important to think about um, and to go into it understanding risks and trade offs and 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 go into it eyes wide open. I think not it's also like I was. Yeah, I think it's also hard for us in our in our historical placement of things that in the medieval times the common person couldn't read, and before that the common person couldn't read by and large. Um, we have an impression that Rome, in Rome, the common person couldn't read. I don't think that's absolutely true. I think that most people in Rome and in Judea and Greece and stuff could actually consume content in their own format, which was more audio than it was and visual than it was reading because they just didn't have the physical stuff to make books with. In the late in the in the late 1800s or the actually the early 1800s actually mid to late 1700s maybe books were extremely much more common than we think they were today and people read them like we were at that weird confluence where everybody took scholarship seriously and the materials were were quasi available i think we're at the point now where we're kind of backing off that and our our literacy rate is actually dropping and so it's a little bit scary from our perspective, that we're returning to a historical norm, and what we think of as the past is really kind of an anomaly against the rest of history to some degree or another. So there's, there's there's some weirdness in here that I'm not really sure how to how to bring into play with this. But anyway, see that's what you get when you do a PhD in philosophy. You have to learn all this historical stuff. And <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. In your recreational PhD, My I haven't said that in a while. I haven't said that in a while, yeah. Okay, so the third article is an interesting is one as well around the culture of tech, is that apparently the Federal Trade Commission in the United States, and this is really a United States-focused thing, but mm, I don't know, maybe this is going on in the other parts of the world as well, is considering a non-compete ban, a ban on non-compete agreements. And I... I'm kind of skeptical about this in some ways, but in other ways, I'm like, yay, go, right? Like, I don't know, for, for somebody like the three of us who've been in the field for a while and having a non-compete agreement kind of puts the kibosh on things that you might otherwise like to be able to do, honestly, right? I've been through interviews at companies where they said, oh no, you if you if you write anything future, you're, we're going to own the copyright. They were kind enough to give me permission to write my dissertation, and they would grant me my copyright back. Like that's to the extreme of of what I've seen in non compete. I've were I've talked to vendors of training who have said if you talk about BGP in one of our training courses, you can't talk about BGP anyplace else. Conferences, other training companies, no. You can't write books about it. You can't do anything, which I think is also very restrictive. Now, on the other hand, I don't know. What I mean, do y'all do y'all have any thoughts on this? Like, what would squashing non-competes do in the tech industry? Do you have any, either of you have any thoughts on or insight into what you think would happen there? I think it's bigger than te- when I think of non. It's bigger than tech for me. I, I live in a very tiny community. There is a local. Um, I won't call out his particular profession because everybody would know who I'm talking about. But there's a there's a a, a local provider who's one of the few um, folks who does what he does in town, and he hires kids out of out of 
a specialty school, and then they sign a non-compete, and it's like a five-year non-compete. And then they're in a situation where if there's any kind of friction or that person wants to go out on their own and open their own practice, they can't within a 30-mile radius. Well, a 30-mile radius of where we are is like another community, right? And so it, it's, I think my issue with non-competes is that they have been used in ways that are punitive as opposed to an attempt to just protect your organization, protect a employee from, from coming in and stealing your customer list and, and just running off and taking your intellectual property or whatever. Um, I, I think like we have operated that because it's legal, that means it's good and okay. Um, and I think there have been some real abuses of non-competes. And I think yeah. that's part of why we're seeing this yeah. outcry. I mean, I, I mean, I can see it in the sales organizations too, right? I go to work for a company as a salesperson and they're going to expect me to bring relationships with me. Yeah. Right? And yet, but then you can't take them with then you. Then you can't take them when you go, right? Yeah. There, there's some strangeness about the whole non-compete realm that disturbs me in that sense. That That's a little weird to me. Um, now, on the other side, would that guy in your local community be hiring those kids out of this specialty school if he couldn't get them to sign a non-compete? We still got to have help. Yeah, he does. But I'm just saying, right? I mean, it's, it's harder as a business owner in a specialty area to say, I'm going to hire these people knowing that if I teach them the trade in two years, they're going to go compete with me in my own community. Like, what else can I do? I just won't train anybody. Yeah, I mean, well, and some of this goes back to like growth mindset and a scarcity mindset and all of those things. Right. Because I, I look around, I'm like, there is enough work for five of those. Yeah, well, and if there's <laughs> in, in our community, for five of those, yeah, right? right. Um, and and it's it's not a straightforward answer because I can I understand both sides of it, but yeah. I think I'm I, I'm I'm a little bit. I've seen so many abuses from corporate culture in the last several years that I'm more skeptical that they'll do the right thing than individual contributors will. But, I think, I, you know, that's not always the case. Go ahead, Tom. I, I, I mean, if you look at um, how labor laws in the United States came into existence, um, it was it was to regulate the behaviors of companies that were willing to do whatever was legal, um, including things that... Um, you know, that employees just, it, it just wasn't fair for employees to have to, uh, to bear. Um, and you know, the length of a workday, for example. And so if you, I mean, if you, if you look at the length of somebody's career, does an employer have the right to handicap someone's career as a condition of employment? On one hand, you could say, yes, they do. And if the person signs an agreement that says, I will not compete with you, then that, they're free to do that. They they do have the option to not sign the agreement. Um, now that might include that they don't get to work for the big label company and and do whatever it was they were trying to do on the resume or whatever their objective was in going to that co company. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I I have a hard time in my mind thinking this is the same thing as a labor law um, because there because there are choices. Um, if, if it was a different type of society where you have to work in only one place or you get this small number of, you know, regulated choices, then yeah, obviously you cannot, you cannot be doing this. Um, I don't know. I, I, 
it's not like I want to side with the with the big business who is you know trying to control people. But at the same time, if you enter into an agreement, then you it's it's pretty disingenuous to say that it was unfair um, when you entered into the agreement. Well, it feels like to me there ought to be controls around non compete. I'm not sure you can ban them entirely, but it feels like there ought to be controls. All right, you've been in the business for ten years. Like non competes really don't mean anything any longer to you, right? Like right. May, maybe after a period of time. You're allowed to sign three not two non competes in your life, or three non competes in your life, or whatever it is, and past that, you're done. Or maybe there's a way to say you can do non compete in specific areas. What really annoys me about non compete is okay, I'm going to make you sign a non compete that says that you cannot develop your own personal brand. That that to me is like wrong. Okay, you don't build a career like when companies try to push you to subsume your entire personality to the company through a non-compete and say things like, oh, you can't write on this topic or you can't, you can't do a blog about the technology you're working on because that would be non-compete. Like, I don't know, that worries me. Um, I understand, again, the company needs to protect their IP. But on the other side, you know, I'm sure that not every piece of, I, every piece of everything that everyone works on is covered by IP, okay? And and it just feels like it is, as Yvonne says, a bit abusive sometimes. Okay, well, you're working on the te- on the network, so you don't get a lot. You're not allowed to go write a book for Cisco Press on networking. Like, that doesn't even, what? Like, that's, that's, that's out of bounds to me. So it just feels like there is abuse. There's a po- positive place for them. And maybe, you know, but, but I'm also kind of worried if they do this, like, what is the radical change going to be to the networking industry or to IT in general? Like, well, there's also some practical considerations in the United States. Does the FTC actually have that authority that will have to be decided? Uh, because there's a good possibility that they don't. Yeah. Um, right. You know, this is, I mean, I could see it on both sides, but yeah, yeah I think, I think the, the question is, is this a something, is this a, a worker's rights issue or, or not? Um, yeah. And yeah. I don't it's hard know. to say. I don't know well, California has laws around this already. Sorry, go ahead, Ivan. Right. I was just going to say, the, and the answer for that to me is it depends. You know, like there's no cut and dried answer. Yeah, that's that's definitely the truth. There is no cut and dried answer to this. I just think it's interesting. It's something that, you know, we should be aware of. We're in the IT world. IT is very strongly built around non-competes. Almost everybody has them. Almost every company I've gone to, I've had to have them have a discussion about my publishing activities and whether it's going to fall under non-compete and read the contract very carefully. I've actually had HR departments go into conference with legal departments and say, oh, well, yeah, we really can't enforce that anyway because you're bringing a lot of this to to the company in the first place kind of a thing. And so when people ask me, how do I get away with this? A lot of it's just paying attention to the non-competes and pushing back and, and being very aware of what they look like. And as you said, Tom, there's a job out there that I didn't take because no, their non-compete was such that I was like, no, thanks. Like I can't, I can't go that far. Right. So, right. And, and it's a, it's a much bigger challenge when you're young mm-hmm. and you're trying to break in to a, a line of work. You, you don't have as much leverage, right? You That's are, right. you're trying to right. get experience and you're trying to gain, um, to, to get credibility. And so I also think it's, it can be more, um, 
in some ways punitive for for younger folks who um, who are just trying to get and 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 they're desperate to get a job where they're going to get experience and break into the industry. I think that's yes. that's the other challenge there too, yeah. right? Is, is, and and how advice, do we balance that? Yeah. yeah. And my advice for young folk out there who are trying to break into this industry, honestly, and still want to build their own personal brand is don't treat your first job as your last job. You know, take your first job, do the non-compete you got to do, get the training. But then once you've built up enough leverage to move to another company as part of the onboarding process, the interview process, say, I know that I don't do any writing or podcasting or blogging right now. I got that. But on a non-commercial basis, I would really like to be able to write about technology or blog about it, whatever it is, right? And you don't even have to have opportunities in the offing. I mean, you can be in a position where you don't have any. But on the other hand, you know, show that you know how to write, show that you know how to do these things by at the company you're at, you know, doing the blog posts that need to be done, getting involved in that side of the business. And once you're there and you've shown yourself, as you change positions, you can say, this is something I would like to do. I would like to look at your non-compete in terms of what can I do that's safe and let's draw some lines around it. And then by the time you change your jobs the third time, even if it's in the same company, by the way, you continue levering what you've done in the past and you keep building up till you get to the point where you can have the kind of leverage Yvonne's talking about. And, and I don't think, I think a lot of people start, and this is just a career thing, a lot of people start out thinking, I'm going to get this job and everything's going to be wonderful. I don't have to think about long-term. I don't have to take, make small steps. I can just take the big step first, right? Like I'm going to leap the entire, I've seen somebody leap the entire stairwell before. So I'm going to do it too. Day one, I'm walking up to that stairwell and I'm leaping it. Doesn't work that way. So, well, and something something that I continually remind myself of, especially in this time of of uncertainty, is that ultimately uh, job security is having skills and being employable, and part of that is is navigating this and figuring out. Yes, how to build a personal brand, how to do that within the confines of your org, how to talk in a way way about technology that's generalized so that you're not revealing things that you shouldn't, but it's also helpful to other people, right? But ultimately, like you have to take ownership of your career. You can't attach it to any one company, um, whether it's it's a vendor or a... um, you know, a Fortune 500 organization, like you you have to own that and, and chart out the course of where you want to go and what you want to do. And just be aware what you're signing on for when you sign those contracts. Read yeah. them and understand and make the trade-offs with your eyes wide open um, yeah. as, as opposed to getting in six months and being like, oh, I didn't realize that's what I was signing on for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Is that, I, mean, I remember early in my career, the first Cisco Press book I wrote, I had to go through legal. Legal had to had to go through the whole thing for like the first four or five books. And then at some point they were like, the legal people were like, this is boring. Honestly. <laughs> like, we just don't care anymore. We're just going to rubber stamp it at this point because we're bored. Right? This is We're just not interested in this topic at all. You know? <laughs> and then I went to my second company and they were kind of the same. Very first they were like, oh, we got to go through legal, blah, blah, blah. It's very, very... But over time, people to get used to what you're talking about, you've built like a presence. And pretty much everybody knows if they hire me now, this is what you're going to get. I mean, I don't talk about internal corporate stuff. I don't talk about stuff that's going on in the company. I don't talk about super secret stuff I'm working on to make the make the product better. That's not that's not my gig. 
you know? And so I think people learn to trust you over time. And it's just something you got to build. It just takes 20 years, right or wrong. It just takes 20 years. Yeah. I, that's, I, go ahead, Tom. Sorry. I, uh, the, the theme there, I think, is that it's, uh, it's in your hands. It's not in someone else's hands. Um, you can't depend on the FTC to make it so you can get through your career. Um, you, I mean, we want the regulatory environment to be correct, right? We need, I think we need workers to be mobile in order for the economy to be healthy. But, um, but I think the big thing is it's, it's your responsibility. It's not someone else's read the contracts, ask them hard questions when you're, which is so hard when you're at that stage in a job interview, when it's like, it's going well, I'm going to get the offer. I've always wanted to work here. And then you see a document and you're like, wait a minute, what is this? Or you, um, this has happened before you get hired. And then the next day they hand you a piece of paper. Okay. Now you got to sign this and you already gave notice and you're already gone from your old employer. Um, that's a scenario that happens more often than it should. Um, and you know, all, all of these things, you just have to take ownership of, of, uh, what you're doing with your employment and it's on you. It's not anybody else's responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. So Yvonne, that's a good gonna... place to wrap it up. Yep. It is awesome. Yep. All right. Well, thanks Yvonne for coming on. Yay. I don't know what to do when you're not here, you know? Oh, but... stop it. You do just <laughs> fine without me. <laughs> I'm happy to be here though. We need Yvonne more and more often. That's what we need. We need more doses of Yvonne in our hedge episodes. Let's All start right. a let's start a Twitter campaign. Bring Yvonne back. Nope. <laughs> no, no. I have Yvonne? this thing called a day job and customer meetings. And and I do enjoy my customers and I love you guys, but man, y'all don't pay the bills. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. We all have day jobs. <laughs> Okay, so Yvonne, where can people follow you or talk to you if they want to? Like get in touch with yeah, you. Yeah, if it's if you want to see like all house building all the time, you can find me on Twitter at Sharp Network, also on um LinkedIn. I'm playing around with some Mastodon. So you I'm also Sharp Network at I think it's techhub.social, but if you search for me, you'll find me. Um but yeah, reach out. Happy to happy to talk. Okay. And Tom, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Just search for Tom Ammon. All right. Awesome. I'm Russ White. You can find me here on The Hedge. You can find me at rule11.tech on LinkedIn. I don't know. You can tweet me, but I probably won't answer. You can also email me. It's not really hard to find my email address. Uh, so anyway, for all y'all who are listening, thank you for, for listening to this episode of The Hedge, and we will catch you next time. Subscribe to The Hedge on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.